Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, it's Amit Goyal. To the entire Cardiators clan, it is our distinct pleasure and honor to bring to you this rare opportunity to share moments with a Cardiators luminary whose visionary ideas disrupted the status quo and shifted the paradigm in the care of patients with heart failure. In this multi-part series led by Drs. Sherleen Abobi and Mark Belkin from the University of Chicago, where we get to learn from the one and only Dr. Milton Packer about the evolution of the neurohormonal hypothesis and discuss a host of other topics like clinical trials, tips for a happy marriage, and achieving immortality, just to name a few. So fasten your seatbelts and join us for part one, taking risks, upsetting people, and disrupting the status quo. Friends, before we begin this historic journey, remember that CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. And hey, help others find us by rating and reviewing the show. Now, it's time to get nerdy. We nerds stand on the shoulders of giants, those who have paved the way for the work we do with our patients and our science. They inspire us to innovate and to affect positive change in the world around us. And today, we get the privilege of learning directly from one such giant and role model, Dr. Milton Packer. But before we get there, I have the distinct honor of welcoming back and reintroducing Dr. Sherlene Abobi, CardiNerds Ambassador and Fellow at the University of Chicago. Sherlene is one of the most talented and well-rounded people I know. She's passionate about narrative medicine, health equity, and professional diversity, and she affects positive change around her via her medical comic platform, Shirley World MD. And I'm also very proud to say that Sherlene is now also a bona fide author. Sherlene, congratulations for having your first book accepted, and I know you're already working on your second. This is just absolutely remarkable. We feel so grateful to know you. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for the kind and effusive introduction, Amit. It's always a pleasure to be on Cardio Nerds. I had the pleasure of introducing my cardiology big brother and soon-to-be co-fellow, Dr. Mark Belkin. Dr. Mark Belkin is a third-year cardiology fellow at the University of Chicago and will be staying to pursue a fellowship in advanced heart failure next year. He's been involved with Cardio Nerds via co-chairing our upcoming Cardiac Critical Care series and serving as a Cardio Nerds correspondent. He's interested in all things heart failure, but specifically hemodynamics, cardiogenic shock, and mechanical circulatory support. Thank you, Charlene. We are very excited to learn from Dr. Milton Packer today. Dr. Packer requires no introduction, but I'll do my best to do him justice for our listeners. Dr. Packer is a distinguished scholar in cardiovascular science at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He has had a long, illustrious career in research, clinical care, and mentorship. He's considered to be the father of the neurohormonal hypothesis of heart failure. Nowadays, most of us in cardiology and internal medicine are well-versed in the concept of guideline-directed medical therapy, which includes agents that directly affect mechanisms in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and sympathetic innervation. Prior to the development of the neurohormonal hypothesis, heart failure was thought to be a syndrome that should primarily be managed by altering hemodynamics. However, in 1992, following years of research, Dr. Packer published a landmark paper that made an astute observation that improving hemodynamics in patients with heart failure did not seem to translate to improved outcomes 
and posited that, quote, heart failure progresses because endogenous neurohormonal systems that are activated by the initial injury to the heart exert a deleterious effect on circulation. Since then, Dr. Packer has been the leading investigator for numerous landmark studies that get a key role in establishing carvedilol, secubitril valsartan, and empagliflozin as the foundation of GDMT, just to name a few. He's been one of the most influential figures in modern cardiology. Dr. Packer, thank you so much for joining us today on Cardio Nerds. We are honored to have you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I, I am really looking forward to this. We're, we're going to have a lot of fun. So, Dr. Packer, in preparing for this interview, I was surprised to read that you consider yourself a failed stand-up comic. When was the last time you tried to do stand-up? And who were your comic heroes? Also, if you have a, a chance, can you tell us who your comedy is most similar to? Oh, boy, that makes a lot of assumptions. <laughs> the uh, first assumption is that I considered myself to be a comedian at one point in time. That's, uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. What uh, the truth is that I was a stand-up comic, and I put myself through uh, college as a stand-up comic, but I was really awful at it. There was a local hangout at college, and I was one of the so-called comedians who rotated to tell jokes. And uh, this was in the late 1960s, and it was pretty easy to get a laugh by just making fun of the U.S. government. So, you know, that, that probably got me through the first 10 or 15 minutes of my routine. I typically went into the audience and tried to engage people in, in order to sort of be spontaneous and solicit some feedback that might be entertaining. But God, you know, after a year, it didn't work. And um, there's something else that I learned from that experience, which it was amazingly transformative. It's so interesting that you ask because I don't think anyone has ever asked me about this ever in my whole life. So when, when we're physicians, whether we take care of patients, whether we do research, no matter what we do, we do it in the context of a reputation which is built on what we've done before. If, uh, if I give a lecture, it's in the context of hundreds of lectures I've given before. If I write a paper, it's the context of all of the papers I've written before. And the result is that on, at any given point in time, I can do a great job or I can do an average job, but people are very forgiving because my performance on that day is in the context of a career. Comedians don't have that luxury. The audience wants to laugh that night. They don't care if the comedian was funny the night before. They don't care if the comedian has a reputation of being unbelievably funny over the last year. If that comedian isn't funny that night, it doesn't work. So you can figure out very quickly that comedians are unbelievably insecure because they always have to perform at peak. 
and 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 it is it's such an amazingly interesting human endeavor the whole concept of comedy is to make people see the silliness of life and uh you know people make a contrast between comedy and tragedy they think gee comedy is happy tragedy is sad no tragedy is about the nobility of humanity comedy is about the ridiculousness of humanity so if you really want uh, a high science do tragedy don't do comedy wow what incredible insight you know i I'm floored, honestly, by that answer. And I think that as someone who's really devoted to narratives, that this idea of your best performance having to be the night of your routine as a comedian versus as a physician is super intriguing. So thank you for that answer. I'm sorry, Dan, you shouldn't go ahead. I just wanted to to respond to that and let Dr. Packer know how much he blew my mind. (laughs) No problem. Okay. No, that's exactly right. I was going to say, you know, the same, as you said, you know, it doesn't matter what your reputation is. If you're a comedian, you have to be on peak, you know, every single night. You have to be on peak. Oh, my God. If you're not on peak, then someone in the audience is going to say, who is this guy? And they're going to walk out. And and you can't say to them, don't walk out. I was great last night. You can't say that. It doesn't work. I feel like the same goes for um, being called in for a STEMI in the middle of the night. Don't worry. I'm usually great. (laughs) (laughs) I was good last night. (laughs) Gee, I... No, 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 no. Come on. Yeah, it's got to be more consistent than that. It's got to be more consistent. You, You... Comedy is really inconsistent. Doing a PCI on a STEMI, come on, you got to tell me that's consistent. Please tell me that's consistent. <laughs> 100%. 100%, Dr. Beck. <laughs> this is absolutely great. And so just this gives me an opportunity. I just want to, first of all, say how delighted we are to be talking to you today. And also, I have to give a shout out to Mark Belkin on the record. He had heard our Ronald Chronicles and called us up and said, Hey, I'm interested in hearing Dr. Milton Packer. And we said, that is such a great idea. Let's do it. And he basically arranged the whole thing in collaboration with Ahmed. And here we are. So Mark, thank you so much. You are absolutely the mastermind behind this episode and really bringing me the greatest treat that I could possibly imagine after a long day of great clinical work. So getting back to some of our questions. Yeah. Dr. Packer, your first publication as per Google Scholar was in circulation in 1977 on the pharmacodynamics of hydralazine and refractory heart failure. Can you tell us how you started in this research and specifically with these hemodynamic research studies? And if you could like take us back to the moment and help us capture this, where were you in your career at this moment when you were starting this kind of work? And uh, where, where, like, where were you heading as a young researcher? Well, uh, you're, you're giving me uh, a little bit too much credit because you're assuming that in uh, 1976, that I had a vision. In 1976, I was 25 years old and I had just started my cardiology fellowship. And 
I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I will tell you a story, which is when I applied for fellowship, the fellowship uh, director said, Dr. Packer, do you want to do academic medicine or clinical practice? And um, I knew what the right answer was, right? This was an academic program. And so what I had to do was swear allegiance to academic medicine. And so I did. I said, I am completely committed to a career in academic medicine. But I didn't tell the truth. I didn't lie. Well, yeah, I did. I, I just had no idea what I wanted to do. I was 25 years old. How many people who are 25 years old know what they want to do? Well, maybe a couple. So all I wanted to do was get into the best cardiology program I could, and I wanted to learn cardiology. And uh, in all honesty, I didn't have any dreams about academic medicine. I had knew nothing about research. I had never done research. I had never trained in research methods. I had no research mentor. In 1976, I went to the American uh, Heart Association meeting. And in wandering the halls, I, I got lost. I was looking for a room and I made the wrong turn. And I turned out up in the poster section and was wandering down the poster section. And there was this poster with a uh, person who was very well known at the time. Joe Francioso was sh showing the first poster on vasodilator therapy in heart failure. So I went up to him. And I said, why would anyone want to lower blood pressure in people whose blood pressure is already low. And he said, well, take a look at what happens. You give these drugs that are used to lower blood pressure in people with hypertension and cardiac output goes up. I said, how did you measure cardiac output? He said, well, you know, I, uh, we put in these right heart uh, catheters and these are thermodilution catheters and you can measure cardiac output. And I looked at his study, and he had uh, studied nine people. I said, how many doses did you give? He said, one. I said, you gave one dose to nine people, and you're standing here at the American Heart Association presenting a research poster? He said, yes. I said, wow, I can do this. So I went back home and I went to my chief of cardiology and I said, you know, I just went to the American Heart Association. I'd only been a cardiology fellow now for five months. I said, there's this theory about the vasodilators in heart failure. I really want to try this. He said, that's the silliest idea I ever heard in my whole life. I said, well, all I want to do is, is take some patients with heart failure and put a, a pulmonary catheter in and give them drugs and see if I can make them better. He said, well, listen, if you're going to do that, 
that's fine. But I'm not paying for it, and I'm not protecting your time. So if you're going to do this, you're going to start after all of your work in the day is over. So I said, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And I started at about seven o'clock in the evening. And two CCU nurses felt really sorry for me. And uh, they said, uh, do you know how to operate this thermodilution machine? And I said, no. And they said, well, what, what, we're going to teach you how to do this. And, 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 and they did. And I, I wrote up a protocol. I got IRB approval. I started making measurements. And I was, I fell in love. I said, oh, my God. This is so interesting. But in all honesty, at that point in time, all I wanted to do was publish one paper and go into private practice. That was my goal. But, but, but something weird happened. Someone published a paper on uh, a vasodilator called Prezacin. It was an alpha blocker. And they published a single dose study and everyone was going crazy because cardiac output went up and wedge pressure went down. And I said, gee, uh, let me do that. Um, I uh, wrote the protocol and uh, basically replicated their results. And um, the goal was to put the catheter in, make the measurements, take the catheter out. And I wrote the order, removed the catheter, and the order was not picked up. So the next day I walked in and the catheter was still in place. So I said, oh, the catheter is still in place. Let me give another dose of the drug. And the dose produced half of the effect of the first dose. The third dose produced only 20%. And by the fourth dose, there was no effect of giving the drug anymore. I labeled this as praesisin tachyphylaxis. It's actually a pretty well-known phenomenon now. But at the time, it had never been described. And so I wrote it up, and I sent it in. And uh, that was actually my first peer-reviewed paper. My first peer-reviewed page paper was praesisin tachyphylaxis and eight patients showing repeated doses resulted in a pronounced initial effect that disappeared. And the people who had published the initial report were unbelievably upset, unbelievably angry. They had vested so much in that initial report. And they spent the next year doing everything they could to discredit me, which was the biggest favor they ever could have done because what they did was they took this unknown cardiology fellow and they showered him with all this attention. I was an obscure and destined to remain obscure cardiology fellow. And I had upset the status quo and the status quo was determined to take my name and make 
everyone aware of how awful I was. And what they succeeded in doing was making everyone aware of who I was. I was so grateful to them. And that was the first paper I ever wrote. I should tell you, it took 13 months of peer review and six rounds of review to get the paper accepted. Because every, but it finally got accepted in the first journal that I submitted to, which was circulation. And, and that, that was my first, my first paper. Let me tell you with absolute certainty, if that paper had been a boring paper that confirmed the status quo, I would have become an interventional cardiologist and made a fortune in the private sector. I would have never pursued a research career, but this unbelievable accident of having left a catheter in place, made some measurements, reported it, and then having upset the status quo changed my whole career dynamic. And remember, I had no mentor. I, I had no lab. I started just as a cardiology fellow. And all of a sudden, I, I, I was able to actually get up in front of a group of people and ask a question. And people would say, oh, that's the cardiology fellow that made everyone's life miserable. And because of that, I started a program. I let every physician know in the hospital that if they had someone in heart failure and they wanted to understand their hemodynamics, that I was available. And at that time, heart failure was treated with digitalis and diuretics, and that was it. There was nothing else. And physicians had all of these patients with heart failure they didn't know what to do with, and they were so happy that there would be someone who would take responsibility for them. So all of a sudden, I was, I was sent all of these patients and kept re writing protocols, kept on applying. I started applying for NIH grants. I had no idea how to write an NIH grant. I mean, who knew how to write an NIH grant? And got funded and, and everything just continued to feel right. After about three years, I gave up my dreams of going into the private sector. But I never planned on a career in research. It, it, was never, it was never the agenda. I didn't have the infrastructure. I didn't have a mentor. I had no basis of going into research. Well, Dr. Packer, we are all grateful that you did go into research. I'll raise a toast to disrupting the status quo. And, uh, you know, we had the benefit of having everyone's video here during the recording. And I just, I, I see Mark and Charlene and Dan, and we are all just so captivated. I mean, this, the simple observation you made looking at hemodynamics, you know, things that we uh, as fellows were exposed to day in and day out led to, you know, this butterfly effect of altering the trajectory and leading to practice changing observations. And, and I'll say that you didn't stop there. You continue to make observations and, and discoveries that, that modified or disrupted that status quo. And here's the thing I have spent incredible 
amount of of time and commitment in mentoring. I've I've mentored hundreds and hundreds of young cardiologists over more than 40 years. And here's the best advice I can give anyone who's who's starting out. Best advice is please take risks. Do not do what is expected. Do not do a study that confirms what people know. Do something that upsets people. If you don't do something that upsets people, then all you're doing is doing something that makes it really easy for everyone to ignore who you are. And I'm assuming that um, being upsetting to the spouse doesn't count because uh, if so, I'd have an illustrious career ahead. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me, I I have to say something about that. Right. You don't upset your spouse. That, that's very important. Very, that, that, you know, big asterisk there. Very, very key, key. But I, I, I have to say something because it, you, it, it, your question prompted. Wow. How amazing was that? Thank goodness we have five more parts to this historic journey with Dr. Milton Packer. So be sure to join us for part two, the secret to happiness, the aha moment, and the birth of the neurohormonal hypothesis. Until then, it's time to make like an S2 and split.